This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 468 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Chief Chris Bator and Frank Babinek. Now, this is the second in the two-part series I've done on the Parkland shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. And rather than focus on that event, I'm trying to bring voices to walk through prior the event and post. The first episode was with Tori and Anthony Gonzalez, and they told their story of being a student and Anthony being a responder, responding to his daughter. This one is the other side of the coin when it comes to preparation from the actual department, how that department was built from the ground up. Frank was then the fire chief. He is now the city manager. So again, the perspective of how a city manager is able to fund the fire department, how those agencies interact, how they're able to prioritize proactive measures, whether it's stop the bleed kits, whether it is mental health for their employees, whether it's realism in training. So we really, really delve into the preparation, again, the response to that event and the post-incident, whether it was lessons learned, whether it was a mental health of the responders and the schools themselves. So for the second time this week, so much information. This is such an important conversation for everyone to hear. Before we get to that interview, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on. Hit subscribe, leave feedback. I truly do love reading what you leave. And most importantly, leave a rating. Every five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. 
And this is a free library for you, planet Earth, literally. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. These last two, if we apply the lessons we've learned, lives will be saved. So with that being said, I introduce to you Chris Bator and Frank Babinek. Enjoy. We're going to start this interview with an apology because we are literally groundhog daying it today. Uh, we did an amazing interview a few weeks ago. Uh, total mistake, technical error, lack of backing up on my part. Um, that interview was lost. So the one upside is we are doing it again. There's some more things that you guys are going to tell us about anyway the work that you're working on. And I just finished interviewing Tori and Anthony getting their perspective of, you know, the tragedy that happened in your city. So Frank and Chris, thank you so much, A, for having me, B, for having me back. <laughs> There's uh, no need for apology. We enjoy spending time with you and uh, understand that, that things happen. So uh, not an issue. And we're, we're, we're glad to be back with you. Beautiful. Great to have you back, buddy. <laughs> thank you. All right. So for people listening, we will kind of start the way we did last time. So where, tell me where we're sitting now, like building and then the, city so uh today we're sitting at city hall um for the city of coral springs and uh this is the uh fifth floor conference room of uh for the city manager's office and uh, glad to be sitting here doing this interview with you beautiful well i would love to do a kind of rough background and kind of journey into the fire service of both of you there's some very interesting positions that you held and now hold which i think is very important for people out there that are hoping to bring positive changes to their department because you guys are definitely walking the walk on many areas. So Frank, we'll start with you. Um, tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Sure. So um, I was born here in Broward County uh, back in 1970. Uh, and I've lived in Broward County my whole life. Um, I moved to Coral Springs in 1991 uh, to pursue a business opportunity, found out that the uh, city of Coral Springs at the time had a volunteer fire department. I always wanted to be a firefighter. Uh, at the time, I was actually a certified EMT looking uh, to get hired somewhere. But back in the early 90s, the job market was just uh, very difficult. Uh, I was on a waiting list to go to the fire academy at the time, uh, joined the volunteer fire department in 1993. And I've lived in Coral Springs uh, since. Um, in the department, I moved up through the ranks to eventually be a battalion chief on the uh, on the volunteer system. And then in uh, 1996, the department brought on. Uh, actually, the end of 1995, we started working on it. But the department brought on a, a paid EMS division, which you'll hear about in a, in a minute because. Uh, my, my buddy over there, Chris, is uh, was part of that. And um, that was kind of the beginning of the transition of the department going from volunteer to a fully paid department. Um, in 2000, that transition really kind of took off, and I was offered a job full-time as a paid firefighter uh, for the city of Coral Springs. Uh, continued to rise through the ranks as a, an assistant chief uh, shift commander. 
um, became the deputy chief of operations and then became the fire chief um, in 2014. Uh, did uh, almost six years as the fire chief. And then in uh, late 2019, I was offered the uh, and appointed the city manager for the city of Coral Springs. Uh, my wife, two kids, um, 21 and 23. My son is a firefighter, uh, actually a lieutenant here locally. Um, and my daughter finishes fire school uh, next month. Um, so um, that's kind of my uh, uh, a brief of my uh, my history. Beautiful. Well, the volunteer part now, now we're doing this again. Anthony Gonzalez was, was on the show with his daughter, Tori. We'll talk about that. Um, were you guys volunteering at the same time and then did you move to professional at the same time too? Yeah, so Anthony and I uh, were, were in volunteer ranks at the same time. Anthony was actually out of Station 71. I was out of Station 43. Um, and uh, Anthony uh, started full-time, I think, a little after I did, but not much. Okay, beautiful. We'll just go in some background for Chris. So same question for you, kind of upbringing, and then we'll kind of walk you through your fire service. Yeah, so born here in South Florida in Miami. Um, did not even know that Coral Springs actually existed at the time. Um, went to high school, uh, North Miami Beach Senior High School. After that, went up to Florida State. Uh, as a hardcore University of Miami fan, was certainly not accepted there. Was not <laughs> an athlete or maybe not smart enough. Um, <laughs> So I ended up going to Florida State University. Uh, I was already in the paramedic program at that point at time in my life. And while I was there attending college, um, that's exactly where I ended up going to fire school, um, doing both uh, college work as well as going through the fire academy at the same time. Um, from then, I, uh, as Chief mentioned, and I still call him Chief, even though he's city manager now, it's, it's still something that's always going to be there. Um, then, uh, was lucky enough to get hired here when the city started transitioning to their EMS. And it was the first time they actually hired professional firefighter paramedics. Um, so I was one of 15 that initially started uh, uh, that process and that transition. There were certainly some growing pains over the years. Um, and then certainly <clears throat> in that process, as we went to a full pay department, got promoted to captain, served as a captain for many years up until which, three years ago. Uh, when I eventually got promoted to battalion chief and serving as a health and safety officer for the department. Certainly this year has been quite a transition, uh, or this past year with, uh, with COVID, um, my former fire chief and city manager kind of plucked me out of, out of one role and expanded, uh, that role a little bit to, to be safety officer for the whole city during the pandemic. Beautiful. Well, before we kind of get to the, to more current day, something that occurred to me, I don't think I asked this last time, um, a lot of fire departments were established, you know, 80, 90, 100, 200 years ago. So, and, you know, the last place I was at, they were very much entrenched in the way they were formed, which was kind of from scratch, but back in the 70s. Um, when you look back now, and, and certainly you seem to be very progressive when it comes to departments, what was different about the inception of here um, to other departments that allowed you to maybe be more progressive than, than some of the ones around us? Coral Springs is, is a newer department. Um, when, when you look at the grand scheme of things this year, our fire department is 51 years old. Um, so we're, we were, uh, basically established in 1970 as a volunteer department <clears throat> and Coral Springs being in Northwest Broward County was heavily an agricultural area. 
and and you know about it the Everglades. Um, so a, as it started to grow, it really didn't, uh, if you will, it really didn't blossom uh, from a growth perspective until the eighties and nineties. And um, at that time, the the system that was in place, uh, you know, was was adequate. Um, and and we had our inspections division, which was a, a paid function initially under the building department and then eventually under the fire department. And as we started to grow, um, the one thing I noticed even in the volunteer system was that there was always opportunities for individuals to grow. There was educational opportunities and, and so forth and so on uh, to be offered. Um, the city of Coral Springs itself has a, an amazing culture. Uh, there's a, there's a culture of inclusivity. There's a, there's a culture of growth and, and being, um, uh, you know, um, creative and, uh, looking for new ways of doing things. So the city's always kind of fostered, uh, that, that type of culture. And when we started to transition to uh, a fully paid system, uh, which, which the conclusion of that was actually in 2004. So we're, we're 17 years now into a, a fully paid, uh, fire department. Chief Halp, who was the fire chief during that transition, always looked for and, and allowed us to look for new ways of doing things. And we knew that we wanted to be, uh, you know, we wanted to adhere to, we wanted to honor the traditions of the fire service, but we always, wanted to look for ways to be more efficient, more effective, and, and kind of be on the cutting edge and innovative in the way we delivered services. So to me, it's more of a cultural thing. Okay, beautiful. And it's funny because where I used to work also started back at about the same time frame, but I think it was a different philosophy. And, and you know, without throwing stones, I, I think they it, it's easier to get stuck and allow the taxpayer to tell you how you should run your department, and that can be detrimental as well um so back to you chris for a second i would love to kind of get your view on you know where as you came in where the fitness standards were where the the, the health elements and then walk me through how you decided to pick up the reins and be part of the the positive movement to to bring changes to overall wellness in our profession yeah, so I, I would tell you that I really didn't know anything. Um, as a firefighter coming in, I thought that um, the people who were here um, above me all had the answers. And I think that most firefighters think that. You know, they're happy to have a job. They're they're a part of something bigger. Um, they know what the mission is. Um, they understand that. But they're not thinking about, you know, mental health exposures. They're not thinking about fitness standards. And most people are pretty much fit when they come into the fire service. I think the fire service and the academies have done a good job of making sure that they understand that fitness is a part of it. I mean, you run your butt off in the academy. So you think that that's essentially how that's going to be when you arrive at, at a fire department. And again, as, as chief mentioned, you know, we were an evolving department. We weren't something that had been around for a long time. So essentially when I started I'm talking about, we're talking about 15 people there was no standards really there was no nothing there that, that there was no programs in place we were basically part of creating what we have today and it's an ongoing process i would say that we're not done we have a lot more work we can do um but i think that that was my thought process when i first got on and as we grew um the one common thing that i kept seeing over and over again is that 
there was such a coming together of the fire service, unfortunately, during funerals. And I saw patches from all over the state coming together for the death of one of our brothers or sisters. And that really started getting me thinking, why is it that we do this? It's such a great honor that they came to do this, but why do we do this only when um, someone dies? Why can't we do this um, to prevent the death? Why can't we work together? And as Chief said, there's a lot of honor and pride in what we do in the fire service. Um, and essentially, um, sometimes that pride and gets in the way of progress. And, uh, you know, we always have uh, pride in our fire departments. And unfortunately, sometimes that means, uh, you know, I think I, my department's better than yours. And, and we don't necessarily talk about some of the things that we're, we're, talk, we're talking about today. And I think that's kind of where this, this evolved. Um, so um, I think back in 2015, uh, Chief Whalen was our, our health and safety officer. I would I really give a lot of credit to the state fire marshal's office and the fire college for actually putting on the state, the, the safety officer class. It was certainly a passion of mine. Uh, I was a former union president here in Coral Springs. That was when, when I started, we were really kind of even working on uh, making sure we had uh, SCBA mass. So we're, we're talking about departments didn't necessarily have we were sharing scba masks from one shift to the next and dunking them in bleach water we were trying to patch together different sets of gear so my passion really was really kind of to make sure that we had even the necessarily tools to do the job that they're asking to do and i think that's where i've always kind of loved what the union did the other side of the union where it was negotiating and, and maybe some of the, uh, the pension stuff and all the other things that you end up fighting were and, and sometimes becoming a, an attorney for things that you may not believe are right or wrong. Um, that was kind of maybe more, more of the frustrating part of some of these things. So I think that's where my safety kind of background was kind of born, but also how it's evolved as well too. So, and then uh, I would say that during that time, um, uh, chief had, some visions of what he wanted to see. He was, um, you know, not only as a deputy chief, but also as a, as a fire chief, he had an idea of what he wanted to do. Um, I had already started working and we had, he had actually sent me to a, a safety conference. The first year I went up there and we had connected with some other folks up in Orlando, uh, Ryan, and we saw that, Hey, there's some things that we can do really the following year. I was already doing uh, Ryan, myself and others were doing a presentation on the collaborative and trying to connect the dots. Um, and then I think we came back, we spoke with, with uh, chief about really looking at what we should be doing as an organization and really kind of starting with the laws. Um, I think that was the foundational piece that I could sit back and look back and go, chief, these are, what the state of Florida requires us to do. And one of them as basic as having a safety committee, some of the things that we were doing falling in line. And, I, and that was really where we started to kind of develop our program and then bridge out from that for all the different pillars that we created. And that's just within our city. Certainly it's expanded within the collaborative and, and bringing fire departments all over the state together to kind of work together on these. One of the other things I'd like to add um, to kind of the earlier question as well, Chris kind of hit the started down that road and hit the nail on the head is a lot of departments want to be self-sufficient and a lot of departments want to say, well, we're the best at this or, or we do this a certain way. And in the beginning, certainly in the beginning, we weren't afraid to or intimidated by looking at other departments and saying, 
this department's doing this this way and, and that that's a really a good idea. Let's adopt that. And this department's doing this this way. Well, that's a good idea. Let's adopt that. And we have some great examples throughout the region of some departments that just do things wonderfully. So we kind of started looking around and saying, we have an opportunity here because we're kind of building this from scratch, if you will, in, in using these best practices to take kind of what our other uh, brothers and sisters were doing around the area and, and learn from them and, and, and use uh, what they had already kind of invented, if you will, or gone through the pains of getting to where they were and, and, and implementing those in our systems. Well, when, when you talk about that whole issue, it kind of reminds me of, I think it was called Newsroom. There was a, a piece, like a, a clip, and I forget, is it Jeff Bridges or someone? No, it wasn't Jeff Bridges, but um, he was in, this character was in a university setting, and, you know, it was a Q&A, and someone said, you know, why, why do you think America is the greatest country in the world? And his, rapport was, or his, his uh, reply was, it's not, and everyone kind of gasped. And he said, we used to be. And then he starts listing where we are on education, on, you know, whatever it was. And, and basically it boils down to humility. And our profession at times is so siloed that we're, in my opinion, so arrogant that we think we don't need to learn from anyone else. There's billions of people on this planet of which millions and millions are wearing the same uniform as us. It might be in Malaysia or South Africa or, you know, England. And there are so many great ideas. You know, it's the same with, in my opinion, with prisons, with schools, with drug prohibition. I mean, all these different areas. And if we can actually have the humility, why would you invent something from the ground up if you go to Department X and you're like, my God, you know, Coral Springs, this, you know, what you're doing with with trauma medicine or, you know, clean cab or whatever, you know, pick a subject seems to be working really well. How can I then implement it? Now I'm coming from... LA County, it may not be apples to apples, but I can take that skeleton and I can then apply it to mine. So when you look at, so especially directly to you, Frank, because obviously you've been around a lot of other chiefs, how important is humility in that leadership element? It, it's, it's, it's paramount. I mean, it, the, and, and I'll say two things. One, the day you think you know everything is the day you should probably leave any leadership position you're in because you just don't. Secondly, learning never stops. Learning never stops. You, whatever position you're in, whether it's a fire chief, whether it's a, a line officer, you, you should always continue your education. You should always ex continue your exposure to what's going on in your field. To me, that's a responsibility of your position. And, um, it's so important to look around and, and see what's going on in your industry. And like you said, not even just in, in your, your county, your state, or even in the country, look around and see what else is happening and see what can be adapted to the service that you're responsible for to make it better. And one of the things that, that, you know, I, I truly believe in is make it, leave it better than you found it. Uh, as small as, as something that you're doing or as large as the responsibility of being a fire chief, leave it better than you found it. And, and the only way you can really do that is see what else is out there. Um, I've never experienced where I've asked another fire chief, another fire department, hey, can I have your SOP on whatever? Can I have your procedure on whatever? Can I have your practice on whatever? And they've said no. 
they're willing to share it. You just got to be willing to ask. Yeah, I would just want to add one thing on the humility thing. I think you're you're right on there with that. So I often, you know, the fire service has always been the one who answers the call, right? No matter what it is. You have a problem, we wear a million in hats, you call us, we have the answers. Sometimes that's hard for a lot of people to kind of break outside of that. So you work within the structure you are, and there are a lot of leaders within the state of Florida who never get the ability to speak because they get suppressed within their own agencies. Their voice gets shut down because those ideas may not be what the ideas are of the leaders, right? And I think in sense, maybe the collaborative has allowed a lot of those voices, the Dustins and others, to speak outside of those boundaries when they're held within their, the restraints of their organization. They all want to help. I think every firefighter wants to you know, leave it better than you found it. Sometimes they don't know how to. And I'll tell you like in a perfect example of that was when we thought the cancer component as well as the mental health component, we were asking those questions to leaders. You expect them to have those answers, but guess what? They don't. So bridging outside of even the fire service and going to research institutions like Sylvester and and uh, um, and uh, Central Florida, the resource program, to look out and grab research and science and actually apply. And that's one thing I can certainly say about our city is they've been open to that um, and kind of working outside of maybe even our comfort zones to ask the questions, look at the data, look at the science behind it, and actually look at applying it and not just talking about it, not just looking at it, but now what are we going to do with it? And certainly Clean Gap's a, a, a way you could look at how something of research science was actually applied into something that was really done. So I think that's a big thing. And that's not always easy uh, for some of the fire service leaders to open the doors to that um, because you are also asking yourself to look within first and before you start pointing fingers at other things you're asking let's let's look at our problems let's be okay with knowing that we have problems and that we're going to be willing to fix them absolutely well a big part of this project is in you know, the reason why i started this is i saw we see in our profession that so many of these deaths and diseases are preventable you know even with the people that we serve and the people amongst us and i know that's why the collaborative was started that's why i wrote my book started the podcast i mean all these different areas and a proactive solution that I think adds to the cancer issue is undoubtedly getting rid of the exposure to carcinogens. Now, I think sleep deprivation is a huge part of that, you know, equation. But I had Stefan and David, who are Swedish firefighters. Oh, imagine that. I went, you know, outside, you know, and, and listened for an hour and a half, two hours, whatever the, the conversation was, and heard the story of the clean cab, what they were experiencing. They were losing firefighters. And why they developed that was de developed out of, you know, um, burying their firefighters and seeing the nauseating posts like clean cabs, stop grabs. Like you have to be a really shit firefighter to not be able to make a rescue because your pack was on the outside of the rig. And I talk about this often. I was a tillerman in California. My pack was on the outside of the rig. I had to climb down and then throw my pack on. Do you know what I never did in any rig that I was on? ran from the cab right through the front door, not even taking a moment to look at what I was doing, listening to my LT, you know, grabbing the tools that I need. I mean, you're going to run off and you haven't got a ladder or a pipe pole, you know, I mean, where, where the hell are you going? You know, the starter gun went off and you're just going to fly into a building. So when I hear ignorant statements like that, it really pisses me off because 
you're trying to negate something. And I just, you know, I wasn't physically there because I came down here, but Orange County, we just buried another firefighter who had cancer. So you're spitting in the face of every single person that we've buried because you think that that eight seconds is going to make a difference on a rescue. You're living in fantasy land. So I would love to add another layer of education to everyone who's somewhat confused on the clean cab uh, concept. So tell me about how you came across the Healthy Firefighters guys, the application, your department, and then tell me, has has it stopped grabs? I'd love to hear. So as Chris said, we started this health safety and wellness journey a a while back, but in, in 2014, we really started to kind of pick up the pace for that. And we started to kind of get ourselves together foundationally to look after our men and women of the fire service a little better than we were. And that was from a mental component. That was from a physical component. That was from an exposure component. It was, it was really in a lot of different angles. Fast forward, uh, you know, assistant chief Steve Fry, who was responsible for our fleet at the time, uh, he happened to be Chris's assistant chief and, and was out uh, actually uh, uh, stationed out of the same uh, firehouse. Comes to me and says, hey, I got this idea the, you know, the guys were talking to me about. And it's it's uh, clean. It, it ended up being the clean cab concept where you take anything that has an exposure to a carcinogen and you take it out of the cab and you move it into the body of the apparatus. Um, and... Um, Anything that can't be properly deconned, you do the same with. Now, we can get in a whole nother conversation what properly deconned is. We can get a whole nother conversation if bunker gear can ever be properly deconned. But for now, let's just go with it's been cleaned. Um, so what do you think? And, and I sat and I thought about it for a little bit. And I came back and I said, I want to hear more about it. And, and Chris and, and uh, uh, you know, Chief Bader and Chief Fry brought me more information, Chief Whalen. And we sat and we talked about it. And I said, you know something, let's do it. We have a, uh, a Pierce 100 foot platform that was uh, being designed at the time. And I said, here's our perfect opportunity. Let's do our first clean cab apparatus. We had a firefighter, Paul Petrofessa, who was, uh, who was dying of pancreatic cancer. And I hate using the word dying because the guy lived to his last day. He really did. He, he, he never used it in a, as an excuse what an inspiration that man was and continues to be. And he actually was on the committee that helped us design this apparatus. Um, he went and did the, the inspections with us. He actually got to see it delivered. He actually got to drive it. Um, and it gives me, you know, gives me chills thinking about it. But once we got the concept in place, I always have to know the why. And I don't expect our firefighters, I don't expect our employees, period, to ever blindly follow something. You, you got to have the why behind it. So Chris, um, through the, the, the safety and health uh, group, um, you know, with Chief Whalen and working with Sylvester and working through the collaborative, started to get us a lot of resources on the whys. And we, we did a decon class out at our fire academy and, and showed the, the importance of doing decon, post-fire decon. And the importance of not only making a clean environment, but maintaining it. So we started going through all those steps. And once our firefighters saw the why, they started to buy into the concept a little bit better. Now, the aerial that we did this with 
although a extremely important piece of equipment, wasn't an everyday frontline piece of equipment. So then we were coming up on <clears throat> the replacement of our frontline engines and we went all in. And we committed to doing a, uh, a complete clean cab fleet. So we started designing the engines and um, found that we actually just by reallocating space could easily take an apparatus and turn it clean cab. One of the uh, one of the major misnomers about this, and we've we've I've called plenty of fire chiefs to try to you know clear this up, is well you're not allowed to put bunker gear in a clean cab apparatus. No, that's not what we said. You're not allowed to put dirty bunker gear in a clean cab apparatus. So you can still be fully geared up. You're just not stepping off with the air pack hanging off your back. You're not stepping off with the flashlights and the tools that went into a fire last night. The other thing was, well, you have to remove the air packs from the cab. No, that's not what we said. If you have a way of properly deconning those air packs and they go back into the cab, and that's what works best for your system, you do it. Frisco, Texas. We had a chance to go out there and I actually met with the fire chief and we talked about clean cab and he, he was dead. And I, I really wish I would remember his name. Really nice guy, but he, he was not in favor of taking the air packs out of the apparatus, but you know what he did do? They actually put a SCBA decon unit in service where one side of the apparatus, this specific apparatus had all clean deconned air packs and the other side had contaminated air packs after every fire the dirty or contaminated air packs got taken out of service. The clean air packs got put back in the cabs of the apparatus. Does that meet the intent of clean cab? Sure it does. You're moving in the direction, as you said before, of protecting the environment that the firefighters are riding in. So they're not in part of the off-gassing of this equipment and being in that contaminated atmosphere. So as we started to move forward with this concept, and we actually started doing training with our firefighters, we found actually more benefits than we thought we were going to see. And Chris will tell you this. He did the study on it. You know, you had a reduction in knee injuries. You had a reduction reduction in back and ankle injuries. Um, how many times have you stepped off an apparatus and you forgot your mask, your helmet, your irons, your flashlight, and you had to jump back up in with the with the air pack hanging off your back? How many times have you gone to get off an apparatus and the seatbelt's hung up in the air pack? Well, how many times how many have you taken your seatbelt off to put to the put pack your air on pack in the first on. place? Every time. So one of the things that I always tell people about clean cab is it's got to be functional. It's got to be easy. And the equipment has to be localized, meaning in one place. You shouldn't have to run around the whole apparatus to get everything together that you need to go do your job to go make a grab. So that's really what we concentrated on through the design and the training for these apparatus. And our firefighters have, have now embraced it. They appreciate it. And they're very efficient at it. And no, it doesn't stop grabs. We've had several since we put our Klebe cabin uh, fleet in place where we've had our uh, our highly trained, highly skilled firefighters get off the apparatus, get themselves together, talk to their officer, pull the hose line, get their equipment to the front door, do their jobs, pull people out of a, out of a hazardous environment. Well, also, the, the, I think the big concern is where you've bagged up. You're on the way back to the station. You get banged out again. A friend of mine who I know is on a busy busy truck company um had exactly that happen he goes james it was easy we put the bags down stepped into our gear snapped everything up and went back in the fire it was, it was simple as that so, still got a job to do yeah and my whole thing is if 
if we're as passionate about that, well, then we can put all the annual fitness standards back in then, yeah? Because fit bodies make grabs, in my opinion, that every time we try and get an annual fitness standard, everyone loses their damn mind. So pick a fire. Anyway, <laughs> Chris. No, absolutely. Uh, so, uh, you know, I kind of go back to that moment. For me, it was, um, uh, there was a lot there. There was, there was uh, moments of, I remember my driver happened to be up there with with um, with our chief and and they were and uh, Chief Fry who who was leading that group and he was texting me back and forth and he's like, yeah they're they're at a point where they got to make decision if they're taking the the packs out um, and I I remember I don't know if you recall but I I remember texting him and saying uh, Chief this is just this is one of those moments this is one of those moments where this decision can truly change the fire service. And it, ultimately I knew that it wasn't on me, it was on him. He's the one who's gonna make the call on something like that and he's gonna get the praise and he's certainly gonna get all the the, the critics, right? Um, but I thought that that moment for me personally, I'm not sure if I ever shared this with you, was a leadership moment that it takes to be okay to know that you could fail but you're willing to do it. And if you look at the culture that we talked about before, that's something the city's never been afraid to do is willing to take that chance, even if it doesn't necessarily work out like you want. But I knew then um, with what we knew, with our connections with Sylvester and University of Miami, they actually came out and did tests and was actually doing a bunch of things. We ran drills, we ran times, we have it on the video on the YouTube link that you can go to to actually see all that. So when you do enough of that and you understand um, where this is going, we knew that that was a moment where I thought, you know, in, set, in essence, the fire service was actually going to change, and it certainly did. We could talk about all, all the things that happened since then, and every manufacturer now offers a, a clean cab model. Um, um, but but it was quite quite a uh, a journey. Um, but I do go back to that moment where where you made that decision to to kind of make that that shift in how we do things because we knew internally we were going to still deal with our own members who under, who who weren't sure about how that works we were going to deal externally within our community we we're going to deal with it within the agencies when then we actually got pushback from other agencies within Broward County like what are you guys doing so um I knew that if I was getting it I knew that he was getting it and um it had to be kind of a a cultural shift and now it's gotten to a point where when, when you hire all these new people they wouldn't understand anything different and we got to a point in our apparatus replacement where our other firefighters that did not have clean cab apparatus were starting to question, Hey, when are we getting ours? Um, because really the, you kind of, you kind of hit that turning point of realizing how important it is not to get into the cab of an apparatus that smells from the night before because the crew you relieved fought a fire. Yeah. Well, especially I mean, we love that smell, but yeah, we, we know do. it's not good for us. Absolutely. But here's the other thing. The reality is in 2021, most of us don't see fire that much. I watched in my short 14-year career go from burning a lot, especially in California, to, you know, once in the blue moon, but every single shift gets to experience those carcinogens if the last fire is still stinking out the cab. So the reality is also, unless you're in Detroit or somewhere that seems to, you know, obviously see a lot, and, and a lot of them are vacants, you know, rather than making grabs, but... um not downplaying that at all, but a lot of us now are running a huge amount of EMS in those vehicles. So it's not like you're going to be grabbing those packs multiple times a day. Again, you're, you're kind of fooling yourself. And, so. and the practic 
practicality of it is that we took the human factor into that and knew that designing the vehicle had to play into that. We knew that if it was a two o'clock in the morning fire, no one's cleaning that pack like you're supposed to clean that pack and putting it back in service. They're ready to, they're exhausted, they're beat down, they're already cleaning a, a bunch of things up. They're not going to be going and detailing a pack. It's going to smell. And we know by the research and science that it's going to continue to off gas for hours, possibly even days later. So we wanted to take that equation out if it's a dirty pack and it's still in pack, it's in the side compartments so the next shift can come in and, and hose it down. It's not something that they're actually going to be put into the environment where they're living a third of their life. So I think that was a big, big part of, of why we ended up uh, moving in that direction. So we wanted to take that human factor out. And you made a great point because that's something I always say too: the seatbelt component. No longer does someone have to actually take their seatbelt off to put the pack on and go. So that was a big part of it, too, from a safety perspective. Absolutely. And then I two days ago, I sat with Dustin Hawkins, everyone listening. That was the incredibly courageous story of episode 39. And we've got some amazing, I don't know if this has come before or after. Um, I put Dustin's second one out, but Redline Rescue, which we'll touch on a little bit, is up and running now, which is phenomenal. But he 100% attributes his wife's cancer to bringing his gear back, especially his radio strap. And I think what we have to understand, I became a firefighter in 2003, is just because I was taught X then, it's not gospel. It's okay to go. We were taught this then. I was taught that, you know, nutrition, good nutrition was pasta. Good exercise was the preacher curl. That's not right now for tactical athletes. So understanding that we have to have the humility to say, it's okay that we did it this way. There's just a better way now. And also splitting the definition between tradition and being stuck in an old way of doing it because tradition isn't a helmet. Tradition isn't a clean cab. Tradition is loyalty, humility, trust, courage, brother and sisterhood. That's tradition. The other things are tools and, and clothes, that's it. Yeah, and clean cab at the time, man, did that really play, play, play itself out under COVID situations? Because the design of clean cab was vinyl, wiping, cleaning, easy, very similar to what the back of an EMS vehicle would be like. And that played out unbelievably during COVID because now everything became washable, wipeable. Um, so um, it really played out in a different, different way, not something that we actually planned it, <laughs> but it certainly played out that way. Beautiful. We're staying on the EMS side then. So and then we'll walk through to a very significant event in your city. So tell me prior to 2018, the kind of genesis of your tactical medicine component of the fire service. Well, um, this kind of, again, with the 1990s, mid 90s of transitioning uh, to having our own ALS transport units uh, in the city, um, one of the things that was was kind of born out of that was the SWAT medic program. And um, as we started to grow that program, uh, we had several of those uh, first 15 uh, paramedics that were that were part of really uh, kind of designing and being part of what the SWAT medic program is today throughout Broward County. In doing so, we, really started to forge a great relationship with our police department because we worked together on those programs. And as uh, we started to develop into the department we are today, we did some cross training with our police department where we were actually uh, helping them out 
where they were teach we were teaching them how to use you know tourniquets and combat gauze and and uh, chest seals and those types of things and then in turn you know the police department was teaching us on the tactical side of how to deal with certain situations and certain types of scenes uh, where you started to get into the rescue task force training and and all the stop to bleed training we we kind of partnered together on that so prior to um, the event you know that that took place at Douglas that we'll talk about. Uh, the police and fire department had actually uh, been partnering for years on working through that tactical, uh, those tactical situations or tactical, having tactical medics on, on, on the department and really having the equipment on every apparatus and having all of our firefighters and all of our police officers trained on the application of that equipment. Furthermore, even in 2017, uh, the police and fire department teamed up and we actually trained all of our city employees on the use of tourniquets, um, chest seals and, and, uh, bleeding control dressings. So it's something that again, we started, uh, doing actually pre 2010, I would say we started to work on it and it evolved over the years and ended up being a, a valuable resource that we didn't, did not anticipate we were going to use in the way we did. Anything to add to that, Chris, as far as from the the ground level, what you saw, experienced the genesis of? Well, to me, it was uh, very similar to a thing. You know, that was another new trend. Like, there was a lot of questions internally about, is that something we should be doing? We're getting into law enforcement. Law enforcement's getting kind of into ours. And you know how we always tend to uh, have issues within silos or working within silos? This was one of those scenarios where we were kind of crossing over in different areas. And we've all often heard, like, hey, if you want to be a cop, then go be a cop. If you want to be a firefighter, then come be a firefighter, right? I still think firefighter is a better option, but (laughs) there was a lot of people who felt like they needed to be be a cop. So looking at it from that perspective of of being in operations at the time, it was evolving. Again, it was not something that was stopped. It was just the way our culture was okay with trying new things and whether or not they were going to succeed or fail. It was something that it was evolving. And so, again, that was just from my perspective, another way the city keeps using our, uh, you know, our culture and our organization to kind of push things forward. Yeah. Well, even in our career span, trauma medicine changed so much because after 2001, you know, we were having veterans coming back, missing all kinds of things. We we're having, you know, medics doing incredible things in the field, Corman, um, even to the point of the adaptive athlete space. We talk a lot about this, you know. I mean, now it's phenomenal what some of these men and women can do with, you know, no limbs, just in a chair, you know. I mean, it's just, it's, it's absolutely crazy. But that's, again, having the humility to say, all right, what we did before isn't going to work in this situation. We have to adapt. And it's learning from others. I mean, you know, a lot of what we do in the field, we learn from our military. You know, the 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 effectiveness of tourniquets and stop the, you know, bleed procedures, uh, you know, bleeding control dressings and chest seals. I mean, that we, we learned that elsewhere and we brought it back into emergency medicine. And you're right. You know, the the procedures and the care that's given in the back of a of rescue and in the back of an ALS transport unit today is it's just phenomenal. And no longer uh, are you looking for the closest hospital. You're doing those procedures and you're taking your patients to the most appropriate hospital where they have the highest chance of survival based on their illness or injuries. And and that would not be possible had we not continued to learn and look at the data and, and look at the science behind the medicine that we're now practicing in the back of these apparatus and on scene. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, especially perfect example. I mean, two things. When I was when I went through school, tourniquets didn't work. Backboards did. And now it's the complete converse. Like they don't make your legs fall off. You can put a tourniquet on. We know now from sadly 20 years of combat that they're absolutely life-saving. Now we have cops wearing them on the gun belts and, you know, I got one in my car downstairs. Um, and then backboards, anyone that's actually been riding in the back of a rig knows how absolutely useless they are. And then you find there's no medicine behind it whatsoever, no studies. So the sooner we can get rid of those for anything other than moving someone, that's I think the better. That's where we're at. Yeah. Um, but again, it's, it's humility and understanding that we evolve. And look at the compressions to, to breath ratio the last 20 years. <laughs> Perfect example. Um, all right. Well, then moving forward, I had Anthony and Tori on, like I said. Tori had the you know, god-awful experience of being a pupil at Stoneman. Um, Anthony was the father and responding, you know, rescuer. So another incredible perspective. I didn't ask either of them to walk me through what happened. You know, luckily, neither were witnessed anything too up close and personal at that moment. You know, obviously, Anthony saw the kind of aftermath. You two do, well, three of you actually do an amazing presentation on that. Um, when we were together in San Antonio and you presented the Rosencrantz, there were all these salty-looking dogs that we were sitting next to that were in tears. And it wasn't the intent. It was just, you know, the, the horrific nature of that event. Could you walk us through the events of that day, you know, kind of the path that the person took, um, the Monday morning quarterbacking, what went well? and some lessons learned, some takeaways that maybe other agencies could learn from to prevent something happening. Sure. Um, Before we do that, uh, this year, the freshman class graduates. So the young men and women that were there, uh, this is is their graduating year. Um, So um, I, I always say that anytime we talk about this, it's an honor of those that were lost and or affected by the horrible events that took place on February 14, 2018. Um, <clears throat> as, as we, uh, just a, a really a, an overview of, of that day, I remember exactly where I was. I remember exactly how I was notified. As a matter of fact, I was sitting in my conference room in fire administration with Chief Fry. Uh, we were in the process of ordering a new uh, ALS transport unit. And uh, Division Chief uh, Mike Mosier comes running down the hallway and said, Chief, come on, we got to go. I said, what's going on? He goes, there's a shooting at Douglas. And I said, really? He goes, yeah, let's go. So I kind of followed him out. Um, We both responded from fire admin. He was ahead of me. He was the first chief officer on scene. I was the second chief officer on scene. Um, as our protocol, he established command. Um, we talked, we got some things going, uh, our rescue unit, our first rescue unit on scene was from, from station 109, which is, which is uh, stationed out of Parkland. They were staged as protocol dictates. Um, but I can tell you, as I was going to the call, we get calls occasionally that, you know, airplane crashes, you know, we're close to the Everglades. We'll get calls for airplane crashes and you're just kind of like, all right, it's somebody doing training, doing touch and goes. We've gotten calls in the past for shootings that you're like, all right, well, you hope it's nothing. And some, you know, sometimes it turns out to be nothing. So you were like, well, we're, you know, on the way there, we're hoping this is a hoax. And it was made very clear very early. It wasn't. 
um, dispatch came over the air and I remember um, when they came over the air and said, uh, we hear shots in the background. And that was, you know, your, your heart sinks, you go into a completely different mode, your training takes over and uh, you are, you are truly uh, in response mode at that point. <clears throat> when I got there, I uh, had some conversations again with, with Chief Mosier. We decided to set up the command post in the treatment area in a very specific location. And we we're getting more and more information uh, as units started to come in. We were having them stage until we knew where exactly we were going to bring them in. Um, we got reports of uh, victims being in various locations throughout the uh, the school campus um, because uh, so because Chief Mosier was the incident commander. I said to him, "I'm going to go do some recon real quick." To kind of see what's going on and then I'll report back to you are we in the right location as far as our treatment area goes so I went to the west side of the school where it was reported that there was a large number of victims and and there wasn't um, as we uh, you know and I reported that back um, but as I was getting ready to leave that area there was a report that there was one victim that was in a, a sports building to the west of the school and I happened to be right there so I went over um took over care of that victim from an off-duty police officer that was tending to him. Um, and then or the rescue that was staging on that side subsequently came over, uh, got that uh, that uh, victim and, and transport him. He ended, he, he ended up making it, and, and, uh, and we're very, uh, obviously, very thankful of that. As I started to come back and I got back to the command post, the uh, more and more victims started coming out of, of, of the building. Uh, throughout the, the response of the incident, there was some conflicting information that was uh, being broadcast. Um, there was uh, reports of shots being fired while we were on scene, although we didn't hear any. <clears throat> uh, you still have to react to that. So, you know, responder safety has to be has to be part of that. One of the things that we did that I think worked very well, and we made this decision early on, although the initial units that were dispatched to the scene started to get overwhelmed, we immediately, when we the second we got actually on the route and route to the scene, uh, we called for an MCI and basically mass casualty incident. And in Broward County, we have protocol for that. So we started getting units dispatched from all over the county to come help us. So we knew we had an influx of resources coming from a transport standpoint. So we never really set up a triage, if you will, and a treatment on scene. These folks that, that had been injured needed hospitals. They didn't need, you know, they needed to get to the hospital quickly. So um, as they were being brought out, we were putting them in the back of ALS transport units and getting them to trauma centers. So we never, <clears throat> thankfully, got to a point to where we had victims that were kind of stacked up on scene waiting for transport. We were able to kind of get that up and running uh, very quickly, which I think paid massive dividends um, to the survival rate where uh, the ER doc um, from North Broward, which was the trauma center that got a majority of the patients, Dr. Boyer actually wrote a letter uh, later on stating that the uh, efficient manner and the quickness that these patients got to the hospital uh, actually, you know, played into their survival. Um, <clears throat> so as we're getting patients coming out, more and more 
uh, units started getting on scene, so we had to do that unit management. We fully implemented our incident command system. Um, where we had a, a staging area, we did, you know we had a triage and a treatment area set up, but again we didn't have to use them because we had the resources there to kind of get the patients off the scene quickly. Um, we, um, you know, you started getting an influx of parents showing up. Um, the scene, it's very hard to secure a, a high school. I mean, it's just it's, and then you have an you have a middle school right next to it, so you have a lot of parents getting there. On top of this, it was very close to dismissal time. So you had a lot of cars stacked up on the roadway. As a matter of fact, the road that was to the north of the school was impassable uh, on the side of the school because there were so many cars stacked up. So the, that initial, I would say, first 90 minutes of the scene, from the, from the time we got our first, from the time we were dispatched to the time the last patient was transported off scene was about 90 minutes. There's a caveat to that. Um, most of the patients, actually all of the patients, but one were transported off scene, uh, well under an hour. Uh, we had one patient that was brought out, um, by a, um, a crew that arrived, uh, to the scene and did a, uh, an additional sweep through the building. Um, and unfortunately this patient was, um, was not viable, but we still transport it. Um, we had the resource there and then we had, um, you know, we wanted to give every opportunity, every chance of, of survival. So we still transport it. So that's why at the 90 minute mark, that last patient was, was transported. Uh, from the fire side, the communications were, were very good. Um, the, the radios, uh, were very effective. Uh, we were getting a lot, you know, a lot of good information back and forth on the fire rescue side. Um, we, um, the, the work that the men and women did on, on scene that day was just incredible. And what they saw, nobody should ever have to see what the community went through. Nobody should ever have to go through. Um, but their work was was exemplary. Um, on the police side, we now know that uh, the first responding units did hear gunfire. We now know that the first responding units, in fact, were, were being fired upon uh, as they were arriving. Um, that was from the second floor window. That was right? from the third floor, third floor. Okay. Yep. window of, of the building. It was a three story building. It was from the third floor. Luckily, the building had hurricane glass, and um, the ammunition that was being used, although it was penetrating glass, it wasn't breaking the glass out. And uh, luckily, nobody uh, outside the building, including the students running from the building, were were hit. Um. As additional police resources started getting there, the police officers that made entry started sweeping the building. And the tourniquets, as we talked about before, uh, that were put in place, the chest seals that were put in place, the bleeding control dressings that were put in place, a majority of those that were used that day were put in place by law enforcement. And those patients were brought out to us to a patient transfer point with those in place, properly in place. We didn't, we didn't change that. Um, you know, we added additional if we needed to and we treated, but we didn't change what they had done inside that building. Um, our SWAT medics or our tactical medics, as they started to get on scene, they were deployed along with um, the officers that were on scene. 
Now, there was a lot of question of, well, why, why weren't rescue task force used that day? Rescue task force were set up. They were assembled. They were ready to go. But the fact of the matter is there were so many police officers inside that building, sweeping floor by floor. There were tactical medics in that building, one assigned to each floor. There was a patient collection point and transfer point set up right outside the building that had rescue task force initially been sent in, it would have just added to the clutter actually of the building. And without, with keeping in mind that the shooter had not been identified yet, had not been taken into custody yet. So although we didn't hear or there weren't shots being fired at the time, you don't know that that person's still not in the building. So when we talk about using rescue task force, you, you, you need to know that at least this point of the building they're going into has been secure. It's a warm zone. It's a warm zone. Yeah. And we didn't know that at that point. So, um, like I said, the first 90 minutes of the scene was, was very chaotic, a very, uh, very hectic, very, uh, dynamic, but the patient transfer, the patient, care was was very organized very professional and very appropriate um the interesting thing is and and i'll get into another part in a second but the interesting thing is we had just done stop the bleed training with our two commissions parkland and coral springs the saturday before this happened as a educational component because we are we were looking to implement a stop the bleed ordinance in the city of Coral Springs where we already had an AED ordinance in place where certain businesses are required to have an AED. We wanted to add stop the bleed kits to that. And this goes back to the whole learn from your neighbors type thing. The city of Davie had started doing that and we share the same medical director. And when I found out they were doing that, I was like, that's a great idea. And I talked to Dr. Peter and who's our medical director. He was on scene that day, by the way, as well. Um, you know, we started implementing that. So we actually had done that training with the commission that Saturday before to, as, as an educational piece. As I said, the parents started to show up. The elected officials started to show up. You had, you know, try to stop a, a mom that thinks their child is in that building from going and getting their child. I mean, that's not an easy thing to do. So controlling that scene was very, very uh was, was very difficult for law enforcement. If you look back at some of the pictures, the amount of cars, the amount of people literally standing in the streets was, was something that was, uh, was, was notable. Um, and we, we, we won't get into this, uh, right now. We'll get it whenever you want to, but really the incident itself was that span. It was the post incident that, you know, to, till today still lasts, but with the immediate weeks and months that followed really became a, a strain on, on resources in, in the community as a whole because of, you know, you, you, you had investigations, you had funerals, you had, uh, you had demonstrations, you had vigils, um, you know, that this happened in, in these two very close knit communities. And you have to, you have to kind of, uh, plan for and respond to that as well. Um, there was a mental wellness component to this. And again, you know, it's things that you never think you're going to 
use, but you have to have them in place. That November of 2017, we held our first clinician response team, or I'm sorry, clinician awareness training, where Chris and I recruited several uh, mental health clinicians out of that training to be uh, uh, an integral part of our planning for having a clinician response team. And what that means is basically having clinicians that are dedicated to your organization in your time of need. Some of those clinicians responded that day. This was something we had only put in the month before, put in place. And that just just to to add some backstory, because I was just talking to, to Dustin. You mentioned you know the first three that responded. So these were clinicians that you basically put through. You exposed them to what it's like to be a firefighter through training, putting bunker gear on, understanding the vocabulary, so that they are now. Um, uh, what's the culturally phrase? aware, culturally competent? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. Yeah. 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 Okay. Exactly. And, and we can get more into that because that's an amazing program that we've now expanded citywide. Um, we, one of our chaplains was on scene with us. You know, one of our clinicians, two of our clinicians were on scene with us. Um, Chris was actually, uh, uh tasked with the immediate response following to do it, uh, to do, uh, CISM with our firefighters, not only our firefighters, all the firefighters that responded that day, all the responders that day. What were we going to do to follow up? That ended up being a 30-day campaign of delivering intensive resources for the first 30 days and then the next year having a plan of how we're going to make sure that our responders have all the resources they need to properly process and deal with uh, to the best of our ability what took place. Um, so the preparation ahead of time Again, we never thought we were going to use it to this extent, paid massive dividends and continues to pay those dividends to this day uh, to the safety, health and wellness of, of, of our responders. Um, we could sit here for hours and talk about this very just brief overview that I gave you. The presentation we do is four hours long um, and, you know, can be up to four hours long with, with questions. Um, you know, obviously we have abbreviated portions of that. But that's kind of like, you know, kind of what took place that day. Um, and then, you know, you had notifications that went in to the wee hours of the morning. Uh, you know, some of these families were being notified well after midnight. And, and you know, the hotel we, that we were going to use to do our debriefing was, was taken over by the FBI to set up as a family notification point, um, you know, the, the Coral Springs Police Department, BSO, um, FBI, school board, you know, they all needed a place to kind of do this. Um, <clears throat> some of the lessons learned, the biggest one's preparation. You, you need to have things in place ahead of time because you're not going to, you're not going to have time to figure this out on the fly. And the most important things to have in place ahead of time is a, is a, is a, a really good, BHAP program, behavioral health access program that has the components you need to support your firefighters, uh, in your, in all of your responders in, in their time of need, uh, having, having access to the chaplains, to victim advocates, uh, having relationships with your police departments, all your surrounding police departments, having relationships with your school board, having a good, uh, public safety answering point, a good communications center, um, having your, your responders properly equipped and trained. Uh, there's just, you know, there's just so many things that, that kind of go into this unified command. Listen, I, 
I, I believe in the incident command system. I've used it for a long time and, and it's not perfect, but it works very well. And when you have unified command and everybody's on the same page and everybody's, you know, at least knows what each other's doing, it, it's just so important to, to the operation and to the safety of the responders that are on scene. Unified command is a big deal. Making sure <clears throat> that your public officials, your elected officials know what their role is in the time of a disaster. This was, you know, I would consider this a disaster. You know, in the time of a, a disaster, man-made or natural, knowing what their roles are ahead of time because they're, they're coming and their community expects to see them out there. They're, they're elected officials. You better respond, right? You better have something to tell us, but knowing what that is ahead of time is very important to the elected officials and, and to the officials that are going to be out there. Um, so really, um, you know, that, that's just kind of a brief overview. Like I said, I'm sure I left a bunch of stuff out. Um, but the, the presentation itself like covers a lot of things more in depth. The incident itself, from the time this, and I'll, I'll refrain from saying what I want to say about, about this person, but from the time this person got on scene and left the scene was under eight minutes. So here we are three plus years later and we're still and we're still going to be uh, confronted with the aftermath. So the bigger part of the response is actually after that initial event um, that, that, you know, that took place. Well, I mean, it's, I'll stay with you just for a second. I'm going to Chris. I, there's, there's some things I want to pull out, you know, operationally. Um, but I think what's, what needs to be kind of talked about and maybe we can get Chris to, to relay some stories is you had all these men and women in blue running towards gunfire. If we break down what happened in Parkland versus what happened in Ocala, I think our Ocala shooting was a cry for help. One shot was fired at sea. I think I want to say it was even down, put the weapon down, burst into tears and, you know, was luckily able to, to be stopped. He's obviously seeing a lot of, a lot of jail time now, but the, the what's the right way to say the inhuman way that the parkland shooter acted the the number of weapons the number of rounds that were fired i just had a kind of eyewitness account told to me recently of of the scene and the amount of brass and blood and everything um and you look at you know columbine and some of these those officers were absolutely in danger you know and, and so could have been everyone else when that person walked away from the school, slipped away and went to all these other businesses. I mean, he could have carried on a rampage there. So I think it's very important to understand, you know, to highlight the, the heroism of, of those officers that went in. I, I'd like to highlight the heroism of the teachers as well and the administrators. Absolutely. I mean, you, you have um, uh, administrators, coaches and teachers that lost their life that day trying to save the students that were at in danger um, that, you know, ran into that building knowing there was gunshots being fired to do nothing to do nothing other than stop what was taking place and uh some of the teachers actions that day um saved a good amount of students uh because they they reacted in the way they did um so yeah and and then you know the police officers that uh you know you had we had an off-duty police officer on scene we had you know, several on-duty police officers on scene that that went in and 
and that's what they do and, and they would do it again today um and and they didn't know where where the shooter was they didn't, they didn't know if they were going to come around a corner but they're trained for that and they're very uh they're very competent in what they do but but yeah no you're absolutely right they deserve uh they deserve to be recognized for their heroism. Absolutely. And just conversely, there's a couple of instances where certainly, you know, people I've spoken to prior felt that one interaction could have stopped the entire thing. One interaction could have at least lessened the body count. So I wasn't there. I'm not going to say names or directly blame, but I had a couple incidences with SRO in my son's school and saw firsthand a, an issue. We have to shift from putting the overtime spot or the retirement spot in our schools and understand that that should be your best officers there because they're protecting hundreds and hundreds of your community's children. So, I mean, this is just James Gearing's opinion now, but if you're not putting good officers in those positions and the same with the mental health side, if you're not putting good mental health professionals in schools, that's something that we need to look at too. Yeah, um, you know, I I, I kind of know the incident uh, inside and out. And I will say, aside from the school resource officer, um, there were a couple opportunities that uh, where this individual was seen being dropped off with a bag. Um, and, uh, you know, made his way to a building and into a door. You know, that that it's just you can always Monday morning quarterback and, and kind of say, you know, if this person would have done this, if this person would have done that. And then I, I you know, I, I try to stay away from the actual officer's responses into the building because, again, I'm not a police officer. I don't have the training they have. Um, but at the end of the day, hearing the tr the uh, the testimony I've heard, seeing the the video I've seen and, and, and some of the things afterwards, uh, there, there are some things that could have been done. Yeah. And it's just important that we talk about it. Like it's not a blame game. It's, yeah. it's happened. So yeah. all we can do is, is learn from it now. Exactly. One more thing before we switch to Chris. Um, you talked about this pretty, you know, fluid transition of, of patients from the building to um, the ambulances, the rescues. Um, one of the, I would say, kind of confusing areas that I've seen in, in my career is the triage system. You know, the start triage, what I was raised on. I had John Spear on the show who was at the Aurora shooting. And you start to see the reality of some of these incidents and, and you realize that the, you know, 32 can do doesn't work or tying colored bands to a dark shirt in the middle of the night with yellow streetlights isn't going to work. So what worked as far as triaging the right people to go into the rigs? Yeah. So that, that, and that was a little bit of a point of contention afterwards with some of the local um, uh, agencies around. We had some discussion on that. When it comes to triage, in my opinion, you kind of have to know what your resources are as compared to the amount of patients or potential patients you have. And if you have, you know, if you have one or two transport units and the next ones are 10 or 15 minutes out and you have, you know, 15 patients laying there, yeah, you better triage them. You better sort out who is the most critical. If you have the necessary resources to quickly get those that are injured, seriously injured, off scene, it worked. And that's what we did. 
because we had the necessary resources either there or we knew they were shortly coming to get these patients in the back of the apparatus and get them to the trauma centers and get them to the surgeons they needed. And there was a couple cases where there were there was a very short time period between they got there and got into surgery that would have made the difference. Um, so I think you know, listen, triage works, you know, and 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 you just got to know when to use it. You can't just like I said before with the incident command system. The incident command system works, but are you going to delay response to wait till you get every functional area of the incident command set up? No, you're not. You're going to, you're going to do it as you can. And I think triage kind of needs to be treated in that same manner as to where you need to know when to fully implement it and use it and when not to. And in this case, um, I've been questioned multiple times. Why didn't we use triage to the letter of the law is because we didn't, it wasn't the appropriate thing to do for this incident. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I've heard Aurora, I've heard Parkland, I've heard um, Pulse from, you know, three of really three fascinating different lenses. One of the SWAT officers that made entry, one of my friends who was one of the rescues that did most of the transporting, and then um, the LT from the station, station five right next to the club. So you really kind of got to paint this picture. And, you know, the the medic triage to the rescue to the, the RMC, which was literally two blocks away, worked. But in some cases, so did flinging them in the back of a police car, you know, so understanding that it's a it's a framework. But I think what I'm learning, me as, as, a, as a student through all these interviews, is that you have to be fluid. And the more training you have, the more repetitions you've done, the more ability you have to deviate from that rigid middle that you were taught. And, and don't get me wrong, we were set up for it. We we're ready for it. We just didn't implement it because we didn't get luckily fortunately we didn't get the queue of patients that we needed to wait to get them off the scene beautiful well to chris if you want to walk us through your day again any additional moments of heroism you know positive stories that came out of that and then i'll give you the kind of reins to walk through the the mental health element with your department post event Yep, absolutely. So uh, I just like uh, Chief said, I remember exactly where I was. Uh, at the time, I was a, a captain um, assigned a shift, and um, I was actually off duty that day. Um, I remember being home uh, and just having the national news on, on as, as background. Um, and I remember seeing images of my department and really actually second-guessing myself and had to really stare a little bit longer at the TV to, to determine what is that my department? Uh, I remember my mind doing that and just saying, um, is that, is that really my department? Uh, that day I was actually supposed to leave to actually head up to central Florida to do a collaborative meeting. Um, and immediately, uh, my mind went, I know, I knew what my role was. I knew what I needed to do. And I knew that the people who were on scene that day happened to be C shift. Some of them who were actively involved with our peer support team, uh, and lead our peer support were, were involved with the incident. Um, nobody had to tell me to do anything. I, I knew what my role was and that was really to kind of prepare for the response to that. Um, so I remember getting in my car, uh, driving down here, um, 
and as I was driving down here, um, and it's important to kind of talk about some of the things that he had mentioned uh, prior to this incident, whether it was the clinician awareness program, uh, even prior to that, we, we had a little bit of roadblocks with our HR developing a peer support team and our risk management. They were actually in the clinician awareness program that actually helped alleviate some of those roadblocks. And um, I know a lot of people tend to be fearful of including them um, in, in helping, but actually that helped us move forward. And in fact, I know he didn't mention this, but in 2017, because of those efforts, um, allowed our city to move and remove all copays for mental health or substance abuse. That was a huge game changer for us. Massive. Massive. This is 2017. Um, and when you think about all that was in place prior to this, of course, we never thought about that. Um, with that also, um, prior to that, and you discussed a little bit Redline Rescue, but Redline Rescue for us prior to what it is now was my cell phone and other people's cell phones. And basically the connections that we've made through collaboration across the state of Florida with people like Jeff Orange and others and peer supporters was, and certainly South Florida, was everything that was in our phones. And I immediately called Jeff. I knew that Jeff, we had had many conversations about Pulse. Jeff already was driving down here. The day that had happened, he was like, I'm on my way. Um, Jeff's obviously a very close friend of mine. Uh, he's certainly a part, he's our peer support coordinator for the collaborative. And I knew what they've learned and experienced already was something we wanted to make sure that we didn't repeat it, repeat some of the mistakes that he said they could have done better as not only peer supporters, but as an organization, um, as Orlando fire department has, what could they have done better and what could we have learned as we're experiencing with it? So knowing the people to connect with, that was a big part of how we would respond. And we learned a lot of things. And I asked uh, Jeff at the time, everything that you know that could have been done, done better, I want me to be able to implement it. Um, at the time, I know that he was deeply involved with uh, the actual incident, but we were working the phones to get everybody here. We literally had the next very next day, 45 peer support providers for the next three days that reached out to just over 800 responders. And those that included nine agencies um, that responded to the incident. And we did the trickle effect. Not all 800 responded, but because of the conversations that happened from one shift to the next shift, we wanted to make sure that nobody was left out. In fact, during that peer support response, we've had people from the airport incident come out to be a part of it because they felt like- That was Lauderdale? Was, yeah, Fort yeah. Lauderdale. Felt like there wasn't any. So with with that was kind of like where my role um, um, kind of um, evolved. Um, I know that during the incident, the night of, there was a schism, and um, I never actually responded to the scene that day. There was too much going on, and I knew I had a lot of work to do. We pretty much uh, opened up our own incident command system. Uh, um, post-incident plan system for, for mental health. And as uh, Chief said, it was 30-day plan, 60-day plan, 90-day plan, and the one-year plan, and then we continue to deal with it even today. But I would say that um, uh, Jeff was a big part of that. Our union was certainly a part of that. Uh, collaboration amongst all the departments were part of it. 
and really kind of um, um, bringing everybody together on how we would do this deployment model. Um, and I can tell you that that was probably um, the single most thing that I continue to hear about today, that allowing the peer supporters to come out and do what they did was probably the single most thing that I that everyone says really helped them. And a lot of relationships were built. The really cool thing about all this is these weren't people that came in from all over the country. They were here. And even when the incident and the media and everything kind of dissipated, they were still here. And those connections were made. We made connections from Pulse with connections with some of our Parkland people. And that is what now Redline has become, right? You know, we, we can now connect people from one incident to another. And certainly we even had incident commanders from Aurora uh, connect with our incident commander of this scene. Um, a lot of people were hurting. A lot of people still hurt today from that. I'm not sure where we would be if we didn't have all those things in place prior. I, I remember even uh, some someone telling me, I won't say who, that expect you're going to lose some people to suicide because of this. And that was a tough thing to swallow, right? It was tough to know that. And I know we, to a certain extent, we we're going to do everything possible. But there might be a person where no matter what we do, they felt that that was going to do. That was going to be what they needed to do to take, to take the pain away. But it was a very, very difficult time for all of us. Our overall response was uh, massive, um, corralling a lot of people, uh, 45 days, different philosophies, different trainings. Dogs uh, were a part of that response, which was really a big, big plus. I know there was a lot of people who were wondering how that played out. But there was a lot of things that we learned from Pulse specifically that we were able to apply. I'll just give you a couple examples. Jeff was mentioned a comment. He made a comment. He said, okay, the people who were there, give them time. Let them decide. I remember going to Chief and asking him, like, what are your thoughts on just about getting anybody that wants the day off off? He said, make it happen. So any employee that wanted a day, even if they weren't on the scene, even if they didn't respond, that was part of our organization, if they wanted the day off, they didn't have to be there within two days when their next shift fell. I remember Jeff sharing also about the blood at the fire station and how employees wanted to be there to do that. And they were asked to clean up some of the blood that was still on this fire station. I think for us, it was the option, right? It was the employee's option. It wasn't us mandating you to be away because some people felt like they needed to be there. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't us telling you, you have to be there. It was giving and empowering the employee to make the decision themselves. Giving them autonomy. And that was probably another of the biggest things that we did right. Um, and really after 30, and we had people take advantage of it and we had others not take advantage of it. Um, after 30 days of that, a month of people being able to take time off is where we kind of said, okay, if it's 30 days at this point, we need to, we need to follow up with some additional care. And um, that's not an easy thing to do. 
I mean, as you mentioned before, we're stuck in kind of the way we operate, right? The way our organization works. Well, we got to be here. You got to run calls. You got to do this. We got to move forward. That's something different. We're not going to, you know, that's a different way to approach this and really uh, give that back to the employee to make the decision on what they felt was best for them at that moment. And we know everybody's different, right? And that, you know, what works for you doesn't work for him, doesn't work for me. And um, I think giving them the option of what they wanted to do and how they wanted to handle it was very empowering to them to, to decide how they wanted to move forward with their mental health. Yeah. Well, so it's, it's so good to hear. I mean, again, it's kind of tying in all the preparation, all the, the training, all the, you know, laying the foundation for the what ifs. And I think it's so important. You know, I've worked for places that had exactly the same kind of mentality and I've worked for places that had the it's never happened, so it will never happen mentality, which we're going to see them on the news one day and it's going to break my heart. But um, I want to get a totally different perspective, get away from the, the operations for a moment, more as fathers, as husbands. One thing that really struck me about the documentary After Parkland was, and I, I think it was Sam was his name, they had him in, in the White House six days after the event doing a little dog and pony show for the, for the television. You just mentioned about space. It seemed to me that him being on camera was far more important than what he'd just been through. And this is, again, just my personal opinion. Um, what I also saw was the lines of reporters, and some of that's caught on the documentary. These kids are trying to literally walk from A to B to go in their school 14 days after that, and they're just being harassed by these reporters. As human beings, what did you witness of the media? And then kind of tie that into to mental health, giving them space um, because to me, it seemed like that only compounded what these children had already been through. There was more media on the scene of that incident than I had ever imagined possible. And every, you know, media outlet was there to cover it. And you're right, it wasn't just for the day of the event. They were they were camped out there. The road was closed down for once it was almost 10 days <clears throat> in having to relive it, you know, over and over and over again by seeing that, uh, does, I, I, I have firefighters that, uh, came to me and, and actually people in the community said, I won't even drive down Pine Island or, or Homer because that's where the, the school is or some that it took quite some time for them to be able to do so. And to this day, Every time I drive by that school, I remember where I was standing. I, it, you know, I remember what I saw. I remember, you know, everything that kind of happened with that. And it just, you know, that's the human brain. It's it's going to store that stuff. And I, I do think that that repetitive exposure to it uh, is problematic. Another good example of that. So during this incident, the fire alarm was activated. What have we taught our children since they were little, whether it was preschool or, or elementary school, was fire alarm goes off, you get out of the building, right? So in this case, the fire alarm went off and, and the students heard it go off and they did what they were always taught. They started to evacuate the building. And uh, some of them, that's how they were uh, out of the classroom and, and subsequently lost their lives. So... When school was going back, as the fire chief, 
I didn't see it fit to have an active fire alarm in that school. But we also had to provide a level of protection to those occupants. So we went through the process of staffing the fire alarm panel. We didn't disable the devices. If the fire alarm went off or started to, we immediately silenced it, dispatched on-scene firefighters to the area where the alarm was going off to see if it was a false alarm or if it was if it was real. I got a lot of pushback for that from from other areas of, of people that have had authority. So in Broward County, I don't have authority over the schools as the fire chief. Right. I actually have zero authority over the schools. The the Broward County Schools has their own fire marshal. I'm happy to say we were able to work it out once the plan was properly presented and put in place. Uh, the school board uh, fire marshal was amenable to it. And we actually did that for, I want to say almost a month. And we had firefighters from all over this county that came out and did fire watch at that school. So the occupants didn't have to be reminded of that day should the fire alarm activate. And it did a couple times. And, it, and, and every time it activated, it was because somebody pulled it, you know, just walking by. And, and there was a couple times where there was um, uh, some individuals that um, maybe had a mental disorder or something like that, you know, just pulled the alarm to, to pull it. But had we not been there, they would have relived that incident all over again because that's how they were summoned out of the school that day. Yeah. So whether it's the media or is it an event that reminds them or something that reminds them of the event, they're going to relive that event. And you can see that throughout, you know, whether whether you, they were an occupant of, of the school itself or a responder. The other thing that we talk about in our presentation, and, and it's a lesson learned, is I didn't have the foresight um, to post internally all of the events that were taking place afterwards whether it was a funeral a vigil a protest or whatever uh, and some of the fire personnel and police personnel would have rather have not driven through that area that these were taking place had they known about it so that actually came out of our after action as a, as a recommendation uh, should you ever have a large scale event like that and you know something's going on or let or internally let your folks know, hey, this is going on. And if they can, I mean, if they're responding to a call, they're going through that area. But if they're not, they can avoid the area. So kind of to your point, you do have those triggers, right, that uh, um, cause you to relive the events that took place that day. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And I'm so glad I asked that because that fire panel story is is a perfect example of compassion over rules and regs. So, and it kind of reminds me, I had uh, Chris Fields on the show who was the Oklahoma firefighter who has that tragic yet iconic picture holding the dead infant or toddler. And you don't think about it. Every single time that came on, every anniversary of the bombing, Chris gets to see that same picture over and over and over again. That's one picture. So I think it's important that we discuss the ethics of some of these media practices too and allowing their, our people to, to have the space 
you know yeah. the yeah. fact that you can walk up to a grieving parent and shove a microphone in their, in their face and ask them how they feel i think is is completely unethical so it's another part of this whole um you know incident but just this experience coming down and hearing these stories is you know that's another area i think we need to address you shouldn't you shouldn't be flooded with journalists. That shouldn't be allowed. That's another area, too, that you have to be prepared for um, through your public information and your communications programs um, and, and have resources outside of your organization that can help with that because one person, two people are not going to manage that effectively. And we know that if the information isn't provided, it's going to be found. So you know, you're, you're, you need to have a good communications and plan, uh, in, in place ahead of time. Yeah. Just to add to his point, I think that, you know, when you see what you see as from a responder perspective, you're there, you have that slice, right? You, you're involved with patient care or whatever it might be, but you don't know the magnitude of the incident. And what ends up happening is after you're home, you're trying to get a hold of what you experienced you fill the voids that you have in your mind with images you see on TV and images that you have from the media. And much of what was being portrayed in the media was inaccurate information. So you have responders who are filling pieces of the puzzle with bad information, and that is creating another response to how we have to respond. Or that were there and saw actually what happened and then they're hearing reports and they're like, I, I was getting phone calls is, Chief, we got to set the record straight on this. This, this, this. That's not what happened. Mm -hmm. So now you're building, as Chris was saying, you're building on that emotional stress that the responders are going through because they're watching inaccuracy and in information being released. Released to hundreds of thousands of people. At large. Yeah. So that added that another extra layer of components that we were dealing with because of inaccurate information that the media was portraying that was just not true. And um, uh, certainly it was being uh, delivered to, to, to Chief Babnik and, and others on how to address it. Well, you mentioned there was some new things from when we last spoke. I know you've got to literally step away in a couple of minutes. Is there anything else you want to add to this before we kind of close everything up? Well, I, I would just say that, you know, again, preparation is, is key here. And you can't, you know, you can't be obviously prepared for everything that takes place uh, within your communities, but you, you do need to have a good foundational preparation. And one of the things that I'm very proud of, and it's something we'll, we continue to collectively work uh, towards is having resources in place to help our employees with mental wellness, with physical wellness and all around wellness. Right. So since we last spoke, we um, um, opened up, um, we're, we're, well, we have one year under our belt of our employee health clinic where our employees have access to a health clinic with no copays associated with it. Um, they do uh, complete blood work there. They do your physicals there. Uh, they do maintenance medications. They do a, a whole realm of things. Um, within the first year, we're almost at 100% utilization with the clinic, and we're ready to expand it now. Chris and I have talked and we have, uh, along with Dale Pazder, who's our HR director, uh, assistant city manager now, uh, we have plans to expand that clinic and we're actually going to be putting an office in there 
that will house some of our mental wellness clinicians too. So, so employees will have access to, to, well, they already have access to them, but a, 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 a place of existence, if you will, for those clinicians. Um, the other thing is, uh, we just started to launch the behavioral health access program model, uh, citywide. So this is something that was in place for the fire department and, uh, we were getting our police department on board. Now it's available to all the, all the city employees, volunteers and their family members. Chris and I, along with, um, a couple folks from police department and, and HR have, uh, begun the process of training our 900 plus full-time employees on what BHAP is and what resources are and what uh, are available to them. And we have a uh, centralized repository of where all those resources live and our employees now know how to access them. We're teaching them how to have conversations. We're teaching them how to recognize that there is an issue we're teaching them uh, that crisis doesn't have to be this large scale, massive event. It's a very personal thing that takes place that affects people. And if you let a bunch of those little things continue to build up, you get that cumulative stress and, and you know, you, you kind of take away your capacity to be able to handle additional things. So we talk about resiliency. We talk about a, a bunch of different as well. We talk about all the aspects of a, of a good BHAP program, and uh, we're we're really excited to get that launched uh, and and implemented this year. Beautiful. Well, what a awesome place to end this. We started, you know, talking about the progressive element to your department, and I think that just speaks volumes that you have a you've removed the barrier to entry to physical and mental wellness in your city i think it's incredible so i just want to say thank you again there's so much for people to take away from this i mean obviously your personal experiences of of the tragedy that you had but i mean outside of that the preparation side the the post incident side you know i think there's so much so i just want to thank you both for the second time first was just a dress rehearsal um <laughs> for uh you know allowing me to come here and 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 you know take as we said take your silo take your knowledge and now share it across the world and hope that Others will have the humility to learn from some of the things that you have got here when you had the humility to learn from others to get to where you are. So thank you so much. Well, you're welcome, and, and thank you for having us. Thanks, brother. It's always good seeing you. Thanks for having us here.